For the last time, we will go this morning to the school of the law. And next week, the Lord willing, we will go to the school of prayer, a different subject lesson, but taught by the same great master. As we do today, bring to an end our examination of the law, we turn to the Word of God in Matthew 5 and read the first 20 verses, the opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Kingdom and the Righteousness of the Kingdom. Whereas different times we looked at Jesus' application of the law as it came out of Matthew 5, we're going to see today what is the basic principle of obedience to the law as Jesus sets it forth in verse 20 and as the Heidelberg Catechism does and the law of God itself in the 10th commandment. So Matthew 5, the first 20 verses. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. This far we read God's word. We take also the instruction of our catechism in Lord's Day 44 as our guide and basis for sermon this morning. What doth the Tenth Commandment require of us? 
that even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments never rise in our hearts, but that at all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. But can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? No. But even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning of this obedience, yet so that with a sincere resolution they begin to live not only according to some, but all the commandments of God. Why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached, since no man in this life can keep them? First, that all our lifetime we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature, and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God, till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in a life to come. You and I have again in the past weeks, beloved, examined in more detail the law of God, what it required of us, what it requires of all who claim to be citizens of God's kingdom and children of God himself. And at any time in the last three months or so, have you concluded that in fact you are keeping the law fairly well? Have you concluded that the law is not actually so difficult to obey? He or she is a stupid person, one who just won't do what's reasonable and right, who steals and who commits adultery and who envies and is jealous of the neighbor and who does not submit himself to the authorities. Has that been the conclusion to which you have come? It isn't difficult for the old man, that is, the sinner in us, to conclude that we've kept the law. There's an irony there for the sinner to conclude that he's kept the law. But it isn't difficult for the old man in us to come to this conclusion, especially as we look at the first nine commandments and see that in their outward formulation, they only regard outward actions. But before we're finished with our examination of the law, the Lord would have us know and understand very clearly that not a one of us has kept the law sinlessly. Not a one of us has begun to keep the law in our own strength. Not one of us can be in the kingdom of heaven if it required our own obedience to the law to enter. That's really the word that God gives to the Israelites as they were at Sinai in the Tenth Commandment. Okay, you heard the first nine. Now I've got something to say to your heart. Have you kept the law in your heart? Thou shalt not covet. And that's really the word that Jesus is driving home in the Sermon on the Mount and the part of the Sermon on the Mount 
that we read this morning. The keeping of the law is a mark, a characteristic of those who are in the kingdom of heaven. It is. He who does not keep the law at all or love the law of God cannot say he's in the kingdom and cannot say that the way he's walking will result and lead to heaven, that he's journeying there. Nonetheless, have you kept the law? The answer of the Pharisees was, yes, we have. They were in the kingdom. They would also be in the kingdom in its future fuller fulfillment. And therefore the word of Jesus in Matthew 5 verse 20 is striking. I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness I need and you need must be greater than than that of the Pharisees. And the burden of the sermon this morning, as we explain the Tenth Commandment, is to ask, what does Jesus mean? How's that even possible to have a greater righteousness than that of the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees? But the Tenth Commandment will help us give the answer. The Pharisees, for all their apparent and outward righteousness, forgot, well, they forgot that each of the first nine commandments in addressing one specific and extreme instance of sin really encompasses a whole category of sins, outward and inward, but even more, they forgot that there is a tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Our catechism is brief in its explanation of the Tenth Commandment, but it gets right to the point of it when it says this, At all times we hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. In other words, God requires a perfect righteousness. As we're taught by Christ in the school of the law this morning, the last lesson we learn regards the righteousness that God requires. It is in the first place an inward righteousness, and secondly, an alien or an outward righteousness given to us. Let's notice those two points this morning. When Jesus says in verse 20, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he's referring, first of all, to the actual keeping of the law. He is saying that if it were possible for the Jew, this must have amazed them and and mystified them, if it were possible, the righteousness, the outward righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, their obedience to the law was not enough And you and I must do more. Now before the sermon is over today, we'll do justice to the fact that the catechism drives home, even the holiest of men cannot do this more. I need yet another righteousness. That's a whole second point. But what Jesus is not merely doing in verse 20 is saying, you need me 
And the Pharisees don't understand that you need me. That's one thing he's getting at. But there's something more. Your righteousness, your outward obedience to the law must be even more than that of the Pharisees. Remember that we can speak of the word righteousness, and the Bible uses the word righteousness in at least these two senses. When we read that Noah was a just man and perfect, and the word just and the word righteous essentially the same word, the point is that he was a righteous man. And there the point is not that the righteousness of Jesus Christ was imputed to him. Of course, that was true of him. But that's not what the scriptures were saying there. It means he walked according to the law of God. There is an actual righteousness that God requires of you and me. And I'm saying that that, first of all, is the idea of Jesus here as well. What God requires in the law, we must do perfectly. And then we can enter the kingdom of heaven. Yes, we can. I say again, hold off just a moment. I'll get to that. Let's see what the law requires of us first. This is the point underscored by the Tenth Commandment. On the surface, the Tenth Commandment repeats every other commandment. You almost wonder, why is it necessary? When we heard a sermon on the Sixth Commandment, we heard that also the heart, the envy, the jealousy, the desire for revenge that comes out of the heart is forbidden by the Sixth Commandment. When we heard and studied the Catechism's explanation of the Seventh Commandment, we understood that even to lust after a woman in one's heart was to commit adultery with her. That to covet when it came to the Eighth Commandment, that which the neighbor has and try to get it by stealing is sin. The heart sin is encompassed in all those commandments. But what the Tenth Commandment does is say, you got the point, didn't you? Because if you didn't, here it comes again, thou shalt not covet. Whether it be your neighbor's wife or house or possessions, major possessions or menial possessions right down to his ox and his ass and the least of his servants or animals or possessions, thou shalt not have a burning desire for those things which would lead you to try to make them your own in an unlawful way. It is not wrong to look at what a neighbor has and says, I would like that, I could use it, and I will buy it from you. We do that every time we go to the store. The store owner has a piece of clothing hanging on the clothing rack, and we say, I want that. And now, of course, the want must not be a burning desire. My life will be happiest when I have that one, but a recognition that clothing is a need. When we go to the grocery store, we see that there's meat in the grocer's freezer, and we say, I want that, not that it will be my greatest happiness and joy, but I can use it for the glory of God, and I will pay for it. But the coveting, it isn't just the desire, 
in and of itself because we can use something in the service of God and are willing to pay the neighbor for it. The coveting that is here forbidden is a burning desire that sets my heart on that thing and says, more than anything in the world, I want that. And I will do whatever it takes to get that. The positive requirement of the Tenth Commandment in its negative form, thou shalt not covet. The positive requirement it is, be content with what the Lord has given, and contentment is a matter of the heart. And so each one of us now examines from the greatest possession to the least possession. Are you content with the husband and the wife God gave you? Are you content with each child God gave? Are you and I content with our house? We think of a house as a building, but when the Tenth Commandment forbids one to covet the neighbor's house, the idea really is the household, everything that pertains to the family. And then... And as much as our neighbors don't have so many servants anymore, our servants are electronic appliances. The question is, are you content with your car, with your lawnmower, with your computer, and with your refrigerator, as opposed to thinking that if just you had the neighbor's your life would really be full. That's the requirement of the Tenth Commandment. Do you see how this is underscoring what the other nine commandments were getting at? The other nine forbade an action, an extreme action, but as we said, the action and the commission of that sin arose already in the heart, but the Tenth underscores it all the more. Because you don't covet with your hands. I don't covet with my feet. I might express covetousness with my mouth. But it's not first of all in and with my lips that I covet. But I covet and you covet in our heart. Perfect righteousness. That's what the law of God requires. And to underscore the point. The tenth commandment is added. Even the smallest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments may never rise in my heart. At all times I must hate sin, all sin, with my whole heart and delight in all righteousness. That's the righteousness that God requires. An inward, heartfelt, perfect and flawless obedience to the law of God. Now it's that kind of righteousness, Jesus says, that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. They whose righteousness seemed to be impeccable, flawless and exemplary. This righteousness exceeds theirs and it does so in two respects. In the first place, the righteousness of the Pharisees was outward only. 
for all their dotting of their I's and crossing of their T's, for all their tithing of mint and anise and cumin. It was only outward, only a keeping of the letter of the law. I'm prone to do that. And because I know I'm prone to do that, I will tell you, you too are prone to do that. In fact, each one of us has to guard against thinking that simply the going to church outwardly and the putting of money in the collection plate by our hand imparting uh, of, of our wealth and our outward expressions of love for one another are all the keeping of the law requires. Let our righteousness, let our keeping of the law begin, beloved, in the heart. You see, the one who keeps the law outwardly only is two-faced. We'd call him or her a hypocrite. That's putting it strongly because it means that, in fact, he or she is not a child of God. And I don't know that about any other person. But I will say then, instead of using the noun, I'll use the adjective. It is hypocritical. To say my righteousness is that which the law requires because outwardly I do everything. You can't find anything wrong with me. But then to know that one day I'll stand before Jesus Christ who with his, call it x-ray vision, will say skip the things you did outwardly. I see the heart. It's despicable. A proud man keeps the law of God outwardly. A proud man says, I want everyone else to see how good I am. But Jesus Christ knows pride and he hates pride. Let our righteousness be inward and arise from the heart. There's another flaw with the outward righteousness, outward only righteousness. And that is inevitably at some point it becomes inconsistent. And in the case of the scribes and Pharisees, inconsistent in a way that was very obvious. For although they made attempts to obey this law and that law to the utmost, they didn't love the sinner. They wanted to make an example of the woman caught in adultery as opposed to treat her with compassion and seek to bring her to Jesus Christ in the way of teaching her her sin and teaching her to hate that sin from the heart. And so you and me, if our obedience to the law is outward only, we'll suddenly be confronted by someone else with a law we have not kept. And at that point we'll say, Oh, the law never required that of me. Now I've set my own standard. So in the first place, the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees as regards what must come from my heart and yours must not be outward only, but inward also. And in the second place, the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees is one that accords with the law of God. That of the scribes and Pharisees did not. Again, that must have caught the Jews by surprise. 
It certainly would have been an affront to the Pharisees who said, what do you mean our righteousness doesn't accord with the law of God? That's the very standard we use. We know that law in and out. But though pretending to keep the law, though speaking highly of the law, they added to the law. And as soon as you or I add to the law of God, we don't have the law of God anymore as our standard. We have now the law of man. Jesus underscores that that's what they've been doing again and again in the fifth chapter in different passages that we read in connection with other commandments. You heard that it hath been said by them of old time. That was a man teaching you. It was a man giving his interpretation of the law. It was a man giving an interpretation of the law that he held before you as the standard by which you must live. His interpretation of the law of God. But I say unto you. And then Jesus gave a vastly different interpretation of the law. One that got right to the heart of the matter. And he said, that's how you are to live. That is what God required of you. And so we're warned against inventing our own standard, adding to the law, making a way in which I must keep the law to be in someone's good graces, having a different way in which you must keep the law to be in someone's good graces. Maybe a double standard that makes it easier for me, as it did for the Pharisees, to think that we're pleasing to God and really covers up blinds us to the fact that we're not pleasing to God, we must have a righteousness that accords with the law of God. Now let's take a step back and see what Jesus is saying to sinners here. Your righteousness must be greater than that righteousness set by the example of the most self-righteous people who appeared in the sphere of the covenant, outwardly in the kingdom and church, that you've ever met, the Pharisees. Yours must be greater than that. What Jesus is saying here at bottom is, God has not changed his mind. When he said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. When he said in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, as Paul reiterated in Galatians 3.13, that to violate even the smallest command of the law is to be worthy of the curse of God. God has not changed his mind. It is Arminian theology, but then... I don't mean just to say we would never be guilty of it. I mean to say we adopt this kind of thinking ourselves. It is Arminian theology to say that God changed his standard once man fell into sin. At first it was perfect obedience. Now that we're not capable of perfect obedience, God himself has changed the standard to require an imperfect. He is content with an imperfect obedience so long as you believe in Jesus Christ 
And Jesus is saying in verse 20, as it were, oh no, oh no, oh no. The justice of God requires that he has not changed his standard and his requirement. And the truth of God requires the same. If you have a God who changed his mind about the kind of righteousness that's required of us, we no longer have a faithful God on whose word we can depend. But God hasn't changed his mind. And that's what brings this question not just to the minds of the writers of the catechism, but to my mind and yours. Can I? That's the righteousness required. A perfect righteousness. Can I? But can those who are converted to God perfectly keep these commandments? Notice that the question is not the question that we faced way back in Lord's Day too. Can any man? And the answer to the question is not, first of all, no. The extent of the depravity of the human nature is absolute. It's complete. It's worldwide. The heart of man is depraved. That's not the question now. And that's not the answer. Can those who are converted to God... Can the one who has received the grace of God, renewing him, regenerating him, in whom the life of Jesus Christ is implanted, can that one now keep the law of God perfectly? No. But even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning of this obedience. That might, again, shatter us the way the Lord's days 2, 3, and 4 if there were no gospel to follow no word that Jesus Christ has kept the law for us and came to deliver us from our sin and misery they would have shattered us we would have been left without hope once again the purpose of the catechism here is to prepare us to see that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope, but with Christ and in Christ, there is hope. The catechism is realistic. I've met more than one person, more than one child of God. I have no doubt that he or she were children of God who came to me with this very burden in their heart and it troubled them greatly. Pastor, I cannot keep the law of God perfectly. And the pastor could say to them, I know that. I'm in the same boat you are. But they said, therefore, I'm not a child of God, I'm afraid. How can I be? If I were a child of God, I'd love him perfectly. I'd keep his law sinlessly. I wouldn't fight these thoughts in my heart and in my soul. Is that a thought that's going through your mind? That this defines whether you are a child of God or not? Then look back at the words of the catechism. The answer, on the one hand, preparing us again for our need for Jesus Christ and to look to him at the same time, consoles 
it is normal for a child of God to recognize that I am converted by the grace of God. I've been turned from sin and unbelief. That I am holy if I don't call myself among the holiest of men. Yet I am holy in that I have been sanctified by the Spirit of Christ. And yet that I have only a small beginning of this new obedience. It comes down to this. The Tenth Commandment, and Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 20, is saying, your obedience must be sinless. He is saying that. And then every one of us understands. Then I can't be in the kingdom on account of my own righteousness. And my own obedience will never help me enter the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, the second righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees is an alien righteousness. You children, you've heard of aliens. I don't believe that aliens are real. But sometimes you'll hear of space aliens living creatures from outer space that come to earth, maybe. Well, that underscores what I'm doing when I use the word alien. It refers to something else, something from outside. That righteousness which really, truly is perfect. That man who truly has kept the law. That man who could stand before God and say even the tenth commandment I have kept perfectly is Jesus Christ. His righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees in a number of respects. In the first place, he obeyed every commandment of the law of God, not only in the letter but in the heart, to the very details of his life at every single moment. You can go through each of the Ten Commandments and say that of Jesus Christ. Look for examples in the life of Christ. Examples again where our chief teacher, we're being taught by him in the school of the law, is our great example. But he's our great example not by saying to us, you can do it too. I did it, so you can do it. But he's our great example in that he says to us, I did it. I did it for you. And having done it for you, I give you the grace and power also to begin, even the holiest of men, with a sincere resolution, begin to live not according to some, but all the commandments of God. Jesus Christ's righteousness was perfect. And in the second place has exceeded the scribes and Pharisees in that he was obedient and righteous unto death. The righteous, for the scribes and Pharisees, rather, the goal of their righteousness was to maintain power and influence. Isn't that sad? And yet again, many a man, many a person, we don't even have to look to civil politics and to the world. Many a person, even in the church of Jesus Christ, in the covenant, says, 
have an image I have to maintain. I have a face I need to put forward. The way people view me, the things I do in the church, that's my goal at every moment, to maintain an image. Isn't that sad? That was the Pharisees. What image has a sinner to maintain? Why is it that when the gospel that the church believes is I'm saved by grace, any one of us yet would say, but I have an image to maintain? And the answer to the question again is, why is it? Sin. Sin in me. Covetousness in me. An image that I must maintain is something I'm coveting. Jesus Christ, by contrast, was righteous unto death because he didn't have an image he needed to maintain. He sought not himself, not his earthly reputation and glory and honor, but us. Not himself, but Jehovah God, his Father. He did it in the full confidence that he was indeed the mediator and head of the covenant, the only begotten of the Father, that indeed the Lord would exalt and glorify him, and through exalting and glorifying him would exalt and glorify you and me with him. Yes, but his reason for dying was not what he could get out of it, but his love for God and the law of God. And in that way, his righteousness exceeded, infinitely exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees. And here now is good news. Having a perfect and an infinite righteousness And recognizing that those whom the Father had given him had no righteousness of our own. Jehovah God declared that this infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ would cover our infinite guilt. There's a word we use to describe that and it's the word imputed. It's a legal term. It refers maybe to what a judge would do. If I came before a judge, I being a man in debt to the tune of billions of dollars, and saying to the judge, I cannot pay this debt, but spare me from debtor's prison. Spare me, Lord, from hell. And the judge would say, I found a man. You are in debt billions of dollars. I found a man who has trillions of dollars and I will legally declare that some of the billions of his trillions will cover your debt. And that's what God does to you and to me in Jesus Christ. His perfect righteousness becomes ours. How? God says it does, that's how. And then he works in you and me a faith to believe it. And now we say,
I do have that righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. I do. It isn't my own keeping of the law first and foremost. It isn't even something that I've added to Christ or a way in which I've helped Him. It is His righteousness in me. Let that be the confession and the confidence of every one of you. And that's the answer to the brother or the sister who says, if I was truly saved, this side of the grave, if I was truly saved, I wouldn't struggle with these thoughts. I wouldn't have these temptations. I wouldn't be so weak in my life. Oh no, the answer is, look to the blood of Christ. And understand that the blood of Christ has covered your sin. And understand now that His life in you makes you begin. But it doesn't bring your righteousness yet and your own obedience to a completion. Not yet. Oh, we needed to hear this, didn't we, beloved? This exalts the grace of God. This exalts the love of Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of God. It's this that exalts the Holy Spirit as the sanctifier of God's people and Jesus Christ as the Redeemer. Not my righteousness, but His. God does not want us ever to forget it. That in sum is the answer to this question, why will God then have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached since no man in this life can keep them? Strictly preached. Your preacher, whoever it is that preached to you, me or anyone else, who preached to you the Ten Commandments and said, if there ever was such a one, the commandment requires this, but God is content with this. It might appear to mean that, but it really means that that was not strictly preaching the Ten Commandments. The one who strictly preaches the Ten Commandments is the one who says, no, God really meant it. From your heart, perfectly, sinlessly, without the smallest trace of sin, that's what God requires. That was a strict preaching of the Ten Commandments. And I get the question again, why so strictly if no man in this life can keep them, isn't that going to leave us beaten down? Isn't that going to leave us without hope? Isn't that going to discourage us? Oh no, oh no, oh no. There are basically four answers to the question embodied in answer 115, and every one of those four points us to Him whose alien righteousness is imputed to us and who lives in us and in whose power we begin anew to keep. Answer number one is that we may more and more learn to know our sinful nature. So there is a reminder of what Lord's Days 2 and 3 and 4 were doing. The scribes and Pharisees did not know the sinfulness of their nature. They understood the possibility that with a word or with an action they would do what God wasn't pleased with. And they thought they guarded against that. 
but because they didn't know or acknowledge the sinfulness of their heart. But I must know that in order to possess, in order to enjoy by faith in Christ the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, I must know the depth of my depravity. That's number one. Number two, the answer is that we might become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and righteousness in Christ. His I need. I may forget that in the morning. I may forget that at noon. I may not forget that at 6 o'clock at night. I may not forget that before I go to bed. Every moment of the day, I must remember that I need the righteousness of Christ. The goal of every sermon, and especially the goal of every sermon that sets forth a command, whether it be the Ten Commandments or any other imperative and exhortation and admonition in the Word of God must be to make us say, then I really need Christ. In the third place, seeking the remission of sin and righteousness of Christ implies prayer, and then that becomes more explicit, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. I need more than the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. I need that, but I need more. I need grace. I need power to begin anew to live according to the law of God. Don't be afraid at this point. That if you seek grace to begin to obey God's law, you will come to think that your obedience to God's law helped get you saved, helped you enter the kingdom. I say to you today, don't be afraid of that. Because even before praying for grace to obey the law of God, we saw the depth of the depravity of our nature. And we saw the remission of sins in Christ. And this comes third. Not an unimportant third. Not a way down on the list of priorities third. But it came in the right order. Out of gratitude to God. I want to keep His law. And I pray for grace to do so. And then in the fourth place. God will have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached. To work in me. And in you, more and more, a longing to arrive at the perfection proposed to us in a life to come. For there comes a day, beloved, when you won't covet anymore. In an everlasting succession of centuries, you and I will not so much as once think one thing contrary to God's law. That day isn't here for you and for me yet, but it's coming. So God will have the Ten Commandments so strictly preached to show us our misery, to point us to Christ alone who delivers us from our misery and whose righteousness covers our sins. To make us pray to Him for the grace to begin to live according to the law of God. And to kindle in us a fervent hope for another day.
And that's the goal of Jesus in saying to those who are listening to him what he did in Matthew 5, verse 20. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. You need Christ's. When you have Christ's, and when he lives in you and me by faith, we will begin anew to keep the law of God. But how? How this will make us a praying people. You know what Matthew 5 is about? Obedience. The law. You know what Matthew 6 is about? Prayer. Jesus is making the same point that the catechism is making as it transitions into prayer. And when I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and when also in me by the Holy Spirit Jesus Christ lives so that I begin, it's a small beginning, but I begin to obey the law of God, then I know this is the evidence that I am in the kingdom. I have entered, really, I've been brought in by grace. And this is the evidence that I am going to heaven. Beloved, the law exposes our misery. But leave this morning happy because of what Christ has done for you and in you. Amen. Forgive, Heavenly Father, our sins. Though they do discourage us, keep us from despairing and being disconsolate because we see sin in us yet. And give us grace, whether young or old, to hate and fight sin in the power of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.